Good morning. Hey, if you, uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab that. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, but also chapter 5. So Ephesians 4 and 5 as you're getting ready. Uh, when you came in, you saw one of these uh, on your seat. Um, we are encouraging you to take this with you. As a matter of fact, you're not allowed to leave unless you prove that. I'm kidding, but we do want you to have it with you. Uh, there's a lot going on in this season of ministry here at the church as a church family. Uh, and something like this is just kind of helping us make sure that you have the information uh, that you need. It's, it's hard to go through all of these announcements from the stage every single week, but this helps you can put it on your fridge. You can stick it in your Bible. It's just a good reminder of multiple things that are going to be taking place, the dates, how to get more information, signed up for things. Take that with you. And I want to use this as an opportunity to highlight something else that we do on a pretty regular basis. Uh, we send out an, a newsletter email every week called New Hope Happenings. It comes out on Wednesdays every week that gives you some of the same information, but it gives you additional things too. One of the cool things when I got to New Hope that uh, I learned was that since the 1980s, every Sunday, one of the things that the church does is they highlight what they call preacher of the week. And so for however many years we've highlighted a different preacher around the country, and you're able to see who that is and pray for them that week. And some of the stories that come, because we send them every one of them a letter, just lets them know, hey, our church family was praying for you this week. And the stories that we get in return about the timing of our prayers and the life of these preachers is just remarkable. And so you can see that on there. We have a mission of the month. And so we have many mission partners. And we highlight one uh, every month that you can join us in praying for, like we did today during the service. You get that in the New Hope Happenings. And in addition, we highlight a college student as well. One of our college students that's left from New Hope that is on campus somewhere, you get a way to pray for them and send them an encouraging note as well. It's qu quite a bit, but it comes in the form of that newsletter every week. It reminds you, uh, and we want to encourage you to get signed up for that on the website. But in the meantime, you can take this with you to stay informed as well. Let me go ahead and pray for us. And we'll get started. Father, we thank you for time set aside in the midst of busy schedules to come and to hear from you. Father, the way that Ben explained it before the service is that we're singing truth together. We're proclaiming it as we sing it. I'm grateful for that. God, I'm grateful for time set aside to participate in communion, to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm grateful, Father, for a time to open up your word and to be edified and encouraged, challenged by what your word teaches us. And so, Father, I pray for all of us as a church family, every one of us, to maintain a spirit of humility, ready to learn and to grow and to become more like your son, Jesus. We ask you for this in his name. Amen. I love a, a good movie. Um, I, and I'm a fan of like not every movie, but I mean, my favorite movie of all time is Gladiator. Um, argue about it later. I also like Braveheart. And if you like those kind of movies, um, you'd also probably be a fan of the movie The Patriot. Maybe you're familiar with this movie, The Patriot. It tells the story of a father who's facing some pretty difficult uh, choices and decisions about what he needs to do. He's a war hero uh, from the French and Indian War. And because he participated in those wars, he wants to avoid the Revolutionary War as much as he can. Doesn't want to be a part of that at all, but it all changes when his son, his oldest son, decides he does want to engage in the war. And he wants to participate in the fight. And so he does that. And then right in front of the family, the oldest son is taken captive by a pretty brutal British general. And he's marched away from their home, their family property. And they know he's going to be marched away to be executed. 
And so now the father has to engage. And he gets his two younger sons and he decides, hey, we're going to go and we're going to ambush this British uh, platoon and we're going to get our, our boy back. And so they do. They go in the woods and there's this scene in the movie where the two younger boys are obviously nervous. They're getting ready to try to rescue their older brother. And the dad uh, has this line for them. He says, what did I tell you about shooting? What did I tell you about shooting? They reply, aim small, miss small. And what he meant by that was when you narrow in on your target, you may not hit that specific point every single time, but if you'll aim for it, you'll land somewhere on the target that you're going for. may not be exactly what you were aiming for, but man, you're going to land somewhere in the vicinity of where you're aiming. And that truth, man, that just is really true of our lives. Most of us, we set goals. Most of us, we have standards that we want to live by. We have an image or something that we want to pursue with our life. And so we set these goals and then we pursue them with our life. And we don't hit the bullseye every single time. But the hope is, man, if I'll aim small and hit small, I will land somewhere on this target. And the same thing is true of what we're called to do in the Bible. You see, if we're a follower of Jesus, you're actually called to pursue a certain target with your life. In fact, you're actually called to surrender your desire to go after other targets, and you're supposed to pursue this, this ideal. The Bible calls it holiness. You're called to live a holy life. It's just a, a word that means to be set apart for the glory of God. My life should look different than anything that is not pursuing the glory of God. I should stand out. I should be holy, set apart. And that's the target that my life is aimed at and going after. Jesus summarized it well. He said in Matthew chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, we talked last week about the presence of sin around us, the power that sin has around us. And though we're not guilty any longer of the penalty of sin, if we are in Christ, the power of sin still is all around us. And it has the ability to distract us and pull us away. And that is true of this, right? Jesus says you must still aim. And sin's going to make it where you don't hit that bullseye every single time, but you got to land on that target of pursuing holiness, the pursuit of holiness. So what does that really mean? What does it look like for us to actually pursue holiness as the primary objective of my life. One of the things that my wife and I are doing uh, to try to bring a little bit of redemption to the idea that now our oldest son, who's in high school, has a cell phone, uh, that's, and we'll get, that's a whole nother sermon, all right? But one of the things that we're doing is we, we have boundaries, all that stuff, but, but one of the cool things that I've, I've learned from this is that there's an app, the Bible app, it's the most downloaded app, and what we've done is we've started a reading plan. So we're all doing the same devotional reading plan, and we all can join this plan. So it's my wife, myself, and my son, and we're all reading the same passage every day. And it gives you a reminder. You read it, and it has the ability to comment, and you can see the progress of the other people in this reading group. And so now all three of us are able to like, talk to each other about our devotional life and see where we're at. And, oh, man, you missed four days in a row. What's going on? Like, it's really kind of a cool thing that we're, we're doing together. This past week, we were reading in the, the Gospel of Mark, and we, in chapter 7, I got really convicted for, for, a reason, for a variety of reasons. One is, I'm studying Ephesians 4 going into chapter 5, and then I'm in Mark 7, and I'm like, the, the parallel is unbelievable. Mark chapter 7 tells this fascinating encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees, these group of legal experts around the law of God and the, the holders of tradition, the, the authority in the religious environment in that day. 
And they come along, and they had all these traditions and rules and laws set up that were in addition to the law of God. If you think of it like a bullseye, you've got the the law of God, and then you had these oral traditions that they kind of heaped on top of it to protect people. And, And they treated those traditions as though they were law. And they come along, and one of the traditions was the ceremonial washing of your hands and everything that you touch before you would eat a meal. Well, they come along, and they see Jesus as disciples, and they're eating food, but their hands haven't been cleaned. And that just really upsets them. In fact, Mark chapter 7 tells us that they were so particular, they would wash their cups and they would wash their plates and wash their hands. Everything had to be perfect before you engaged in a meal, the ceremonial washing. And I love that passage in Mark chapter 7 because Jesus responds to them. (laughs) And it's like, oh man, get the popcorn out. This is going to be good. And Jesus essentially, I mean, really does say, you hypocrites. You spend all your time When the laws benefit you, but when they have to involve you sacrificing for the sake of other people, you don't want to pay attention to that. And you clean the outside of the dish, but the inside's dirty. You clean everything on the outside, make it all look good, but what's going on inside is corrupt and wrong. That hasn't been given over to God. You make it look like you're aiming for the right target, but really you're after the wrong target. In Mark 7, verse 20, he says this. He says, he went, he went on, Jesus went on speaking. He says, what comes out of a person is what defies, defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evil come from inside, and they defile a person. So Jesus is saying, hey, I agree with you, Pharisees, on the fact that we are called to be holy. That is the target that our life should be aimed at. But boy, you are aiming at the wrong target because you've made your pursuit of holiness all about the outward appearance, all about what you do. And you have neglected the fact that the pursuit of holiness is about the transforming of your life, changing the very fabric of who you are as a person. And you think about like the, the actions that we do, or like the arrows that we're shooting. We're shooting, I'm doing these things in hopes that I hit the target of becoming more like Jesus. And what he's telling them is you're getting that all wrong. And as a result, you're becoming judgmental over other people because they're not doing all of the traditions and behaving the way that you want them to behave. Well, maybe you've met people like that. You know, coming into the church, becoming a Christian a little bit later, uh, around my college years at the very end of high school, one of the things that was a little upsetting to me was pharisaical type Christians who had rules and traditions so locked up tight that they imposed on me. And when I didn't look perfectly like them, I would experience this judgmental feeling. Now, I want to be clear that not all judgmental feelings are because other people are upholding a standard over your life. Some of it is the conviction of the spirit and you need to change. But there are other times where it is the judgment, judgment of other people that is imposed on us. And maybe you've experienced that and you see these judgmental people that point out every single mistake that you make because they've held this standard or this tradition that's not tied to the law of God. It's really just tied to the way they like things to be done. That's the easy part. It's easy to see it and even experience it from other people. You know, the harder part is to see the Pharisee in us is to see when you've reduced your pursuit of holiness to a bunch of behaviors and traditions that you're holding on tight to, but really your heart's not engaged in it. In fact, in Mark 7, Jesus would point out, boy, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Your heart is far from me. You're just, you're just doing it all for the outward appearance, making it look all good, and, and it makes you feel better because you feel like you're doing something. Now, here's where it's hard. Here's the difficulty. The pursuit of holiness requires that you do things. 
You can't sit back and wait for it to fall on top of you. You must engage spiritual disciplines. You must do certain things in your pursuit of holiness. That's why this gets so hard, I think, for many Christians, because it's not like you separate the doing of things from the becoming. They work hand in hand, but because it involves doing things, sometimes that distracts us and we make it all about what we're doing and we lose track of who we're becoming because it's not as practical. It's not as easy to form a list around. It becomes a little bit harder to do that. See, the people in Ephesus, they understood this. They were living out, doing things that were really, really good and making a big difference in their city. And yet Paul still has the words that we're going to read today for them to remind them what it was really all about. You see, in Ephesus, let me give you an example here. This was a pagan town that was so heavily influenced by the darkness that we talked about last week that had surrounded this city of Ephesus So many different cultures coming and going. This was a port city. Lots of uh, intermingling, lots of transient people that were living there for a little while, moving away and coming back and going, and just all this influence. And at the height of it was one of the wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis or or Diana. And you had this false god, and people would come in, and they'd participate in all these evil things. Well, one of the things that took place in this temple was these fire coals. Now, fire, as it is now, was back then, Uh, required uh, to preserve life. They needed it to warm their homes. They needed fire to cook and to clean and to do all kinds of things in their homes. And so they would warm their homes with these fire coals. Well, the only place in Ephesus to get those fire coals to warm your home was in this temple. So you'd have to go into the temple and the priests that ran the temple would have these ceramic bowls and you would get a ceramic bowl and you'd get some fire coals to then go home and warm your house and clean your things and to uh, all those things. But in order to get it, you had to pay uh, a, a homage to this false god. You were kind of tithing, in a way, to this false temple. And you had to give this. It was a monopoly, too, because there was no, it was like having the power, sewage, water, all rolled into one, and you couldn't go anywhere else to get it in our day. And that's what they had to do. And in order to get it, you had to pay. And in, if you're paying, then you're kind of paying your, your allegiance to this false god. And they just had this monopoly on it. Well, the Christians... As you study history, archaeology, and some other things, you learn that they didn't do that. The Christians in Ephesus, they were aiming for a different target. They didn't seem to mind the fact that it was going to make their life a little bit harder. And so what they would do is they'd get their own ceramic bowls. It's like a fire bowl is what they would call them. And if they went around and they saw somebody's home where the fire had gone out, they would go into their own homes, take some of their own fire coals, come together and go and provide for this family. And they did it for a lot of reasons. They did it so that they could deprive the temple of more financial means. So, hey, my little bit's going to make a difference. I'm going to keep doing this. They did it to show the surrounding culture that they weren't scared to face up against these false gods. And they did it because they wanted to pursue the heart of God. And yet, with all that good, the Apostle Paul still needs to remind them that your pursuit of Jesus is not only about the good that you're doing. It's about who you're becoming and how those good things are contributing to you becoming more and more like the God that you're worshiping. And so he has these words for him to remind them about the purpose and the goal of living a holy life. I'm going to have you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. And we've got a lot, so get your legs ready, okay? We're going to start in chapter 4, verse 20. Here's how Paul begins to describe the way we're called to live as Christians. He says this, That, however, is not the way of life that you learned, what we talked about in the darkness last week, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may give, have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such, as a, per- such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Paul is contrasting two ways of living, two targets that you would aim at with your life. Last week, he said, there is this target that's surrounded in darkness. That's the analogy that he uses. And the darkness becomes so powerful that it begins uh, to change the way you see things. You get desensitized to the very presence of the darkness. You desensitize because of the way you're thinking. You start thinking different about life and about your goals and about what you're aiming for. And as a result, your heart begins to get hardened. You don't even notice it. You experience numbness to the evil that's around you. And these calluses form around your heart. And Paul says that is what you're seeing in the culture around you. It's what he's telling the the Christians in Ephesus. And the parallel is clear in our culture today. If that's what you're aiming for, that's what's going to happen to you. And then he comes in and he says, but that's not the way that you're called to live. That's not the things you're supposed to pursue if you're a follower of Jesus. If you've placed your life under the lordship of Jesus, your whole life is to be aimed at a completely different target, pursuing different goals and values and all kinds of different things. But he doesn't say you pursue those things in order to earn becoming a new person. What he's telling them is this. You've already been given that gift in Christ. You're in Christ. You are a new creation. And to do these disciplines... And to add these things to your life is about becoming more and more of the new person that you already have access to. It's simply giving of yourself more and more. I need to put these things out of my life and take these things more into my life. I need to become more and more like Jesus. And that's what he's calling them to do. And he lists a bunch of things in the passage that we just read. And so I'm going to take a minute and I've created my list. And I want to walk through these things. And there's two things here. Paul doesn't seem to be joking around, making a suggestion, like, hey, it'd be good if you guys lived this way, right? He seems to be completely and totally serious. Like, this is important. Pay attention. But the second thing is this. We have a tendency to take lists and create action items that become the goal. I don't know if it's just a Western thing, but every time we're given a list, we're like, all right, that's it. If I check these things off this list, I'm good to go. That's the danger. 
Either way, because of the seriousness in the text that Paul lists these things, it's important for us to learn them. But we have to be careful not to turn the list itself into the goal. Let's walk through this. The first thing that Paul, that I see here is Paul says, tell the truth. You want to live a holy life. You want your life to reflect the holiness of God. The first thing is you need to be an honest person. He says, put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. Speak truthfully. So what, what would be the opposite of that? Well, the opposite is lying, right? And a lie is a deliberate misrepresentation of what you know or think you know is true. If you have an inclination that the right thing to do is this, and yet you don't do that, you're not telling the truth. And Paul says, if you want your life to be aimed at the right target, you need to be an honest person. You need to be somebody who has the courage to tell the truth. And I think those two are tied together completely. I need to be honest. I don't want to uh, hide the truth or make it vague in an effort to protect an uncomfortable conversation that I might have to have. I don't want to protect somebody from seeing me different, avoid telling them what they need to know and what the truth is. Now, this involves wisdom and discernment about timing and about wording and about tone. But at the same time, he ties the truthfulness to the intimacy of a relationship as close as a neighbor. And he says, be honest with your neighbor, meaning those are the easiest people for us to not be fully honest with. The people we know aren't going anywhere. The family members that we have, it's like, I don't have to really tell them everything because they're not going anywhere. We're like, we're family. And yet, why is it so easy for us to not be fully honest with those people in our lives. And Paul says, if you want to live a holy life, you need to be an honest person. The second one is control your anger. So you might say, hey, am I an angry person? He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give in to your anger. Now we did an entire series on the biblical theology of anger. And so I'm not going to go into the detail except to point this out. Here it is again. It's shown up again in the text. Another example of the Bible's clear warning to protect yourself from this emotional pitfall. He says, don't let the devil have a foothold. He's looking to use your emotions to change the target that your life is aimed at. And boy, is anger not one of the easiest ones to do that with in our culture today. So he says, be careful because if you don't deal with your anger quickly and you let it fester, it will grow like an emotional cancer and it'll take over everything. Number three, he says, work hard. He says, work and do something useful with your own hands. Stop stealing. Stop being dishonest. Stop stealing. Stop cutting corners. Work hard. This is a message I try to give to my kids all the time. Like, hey, you want to live a godly life? You have to work hard. Is that easy? No. No, it's not easy. Is it rewarding? Absolutely. Because you were created. When God created you, he created you to work. It was there before the fall. And it's one of the things that God kept in after the fall. We are to be co-creators, participate in the creation mandate. That takes effort and work. We're to use the gifts that God gave us to produce good for the benefit of other people. And so are you somebody who whines and complains every time you have a hard work day in front of you? Are you someone who gossips because your boss has asked you to do a task that you think is going to be difficult? Are you somebody who uh, rubs somebody else's name through the mud simply because you have some difficulty in front of you that you need to work through? Or do you take to heart the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, whatever you do, Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as though you're working for the Lord and not man. Is your work, your hard work, your approach to working hard an offering of worship to God or not? Number four, Paul says, if you want to live a holy life, you need to be a generous person. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That God owns everything, which means I don't. (laughs) 
I don't own. Anything that I have, I don't own. Whether it's relational, whether it's physical property, whether it's an investment, whether I've worked really, really hard to save up all that money to protect me from my retirement. It's not mine. It can be taken in a moment, and that just shows that it's not mine. But I have been asked to take care of some resources, to steward them well. And the the Apostle Paul here to the Ephesian church says, when you're living in Ephesus and you're saving money and you're doing well financially and you're doing things, you've been asked to take care of those resources for a purpose, and that purpose is to help other people. Is to be generous, whether that's with your time or with your physical resources, to benefit other people. It is not all about you. And so you want to live a life that's pointed at the target of pursuing the holiness of God. You must do the hard work of figuring out why it is you have a hard time being generous. And if our generous is tied to holiness, it must stand out as unique and different, even than the generosity that the rest of the world participates in. Because it's not for our benefit. It's truly to benefit other people. So we tithe and the world says, why would you give a percentage of your income to the church? You say, because I'm participating in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Why would you give up your time and take your vacation days to go on a mission trip? Because I'm participating in an economy that's different than the economy you're investing in. I'm participating in a kingdom that's different than the kingdom that you're a part of. I'm aiming for a target that doesn't look like the target that your life is aiming at. Number five, and this one's very difficult. Watch your mouth. <laughs> I think this is one of the harder ones because Paul doesn't just include like words, but like in, built into the very language that he's using here is even the words that are in our minds, our thoughts. And he says, there should be no obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather you should have thanksgiving. I find it fascinating when I have conversations with Christians who want to use foul language. They want to cuss. And they like to use that to poke at Christians who don't want to, who think that there might be, hey, the Apostle Paul's telling us not to use that kind of language. And they would say, well, that's not true. I can say these words, and I'll show you why I can say these words. And they like to get a rise out of people. And all that your bad language does is it shows the target that your life is aimed after. That's all it does. And you know what's fascinating? When I have these conversations, I'll say, hey, the Bible says don't cuss. And they'll say, well, I think I should. I'll say, well, here's the deal. You knew what I meant when I said cuss. I didn't even have to give you a list of vocabulary words. You knew it. Because you know what language is inappropriate and what language is appropriate. You knew it. It's built in. You know it. That's why when you say those words, if you get that little feeling, that little edge. Right? Because Paul says here, you can't give in to that. You can't live a holy life and continue to give in to it and continue to listen to it, the inappropriate humor. If you're making a bad joke to get a laugh out of somebody, who are you serving? You're serving yourself. And you're not pursuing holiness. When you use language that is defined as vulgar and gross and inappropriate and not helpful, you are participating in aiming your life at a target that is not the pursuit of holiness. And so Paul says, take it seriously. Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So the thing that you value the most is going to be represented in your heart. In your heart, we're going to get a portal. We're going to get a look into what's going on in the heart by the words that you speak. It tells you what's most important to you and where your life is aimed. The next thing he says is be kind. Verse 32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. If you want to live a holy life, you need to live a life of being kind to other people, which involves listening and not speaking all the time, which involves the humility to recognize you're not the expert in every field solving everybody's problems, but you're kind and compassionate toward them, that when their struggles are not your struggles, when the things that they're struggling with, you can't fully wrap your brain around instead of being judgmental about it, 
recognize, I don't understand what that feels like, but how can I help? I was on the phone with somebody uh, just having a, a heavier pastoral conversation this week and trying to listen as best I could. And I wasn't the expert with what they were going through. And in the course of our conversation, this question came up. And I just thought, man, this applies to this number six here on the list. They said this. The way they're thinking about it is this. When, when my life becomes a story that other people tell, what story do I want being told? So when your life is done, and it's just a story that your kids and grandkids tell, do you want them to describe a person who had the kindness and compassion of Jesus? Because you have to invest in that story now. That's what Paul's saying. You have to be aiming for that target now. You don't wait and stumble and trip, and all of a sudden you're living the life that you want everyone else to tell when they tell your story. The last one is this. Watch out for sexual temptation. Paul's language around this particular one on the list is extremely strong and repetitive. He repeats it more than once. And he repeats it more than once in the letter to the Ephesians because they live in, lived in a hyper-sexualized culture. That worship that took place in that temple was very sexual in nature. It was appeasing some disgusting appetite that they had. If you, it's like taking a nap. That's the analogy that's used by commentators when you read about the letter to the Ephesians. They'd had this mentality. If you're tired, take a nap. If you want to have sex, go find someone to have sex with. Just do it. Like feed the appetite. And we talked about appetites last week, how they lead you to deceitfulness. They are one of Satan's tools to deceive you. So Paul says here, watch out. Pornography, emotional affairs, homosexuality, sex before marriage, sex with multiple people, sex with someone who you're not married to. All of these things are a barrier to your ability to live a holy life. They just are. You can argue it and try to justify all you want. You can try to find angles to figure out a way that you can have what you want, and you're just feeding an appetite that doesn't line up with the holiness of God. Now, here's the thing. I gave you a list. And there's going to be a temptation that Satan wants to use in your life. He's going to come along. He's going to help you say, here's the list. If you can do these things, you're good to go. So just make sure you're doing these things. And yet Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, oh, man, that's just like doing the dishes. There's no real change taking place. You're just making sure everything looks good and that you line up and you check the things off your list. But what's really important is that these are just the arrows in your hand trying to hit the arrow of becoming more like Jesus. So you do these things in an effort to say, I want more of my life to reflect him. I want to continue to be transformed and changed into who God wants me to be. And if I'm going to do that, I need to live this way. Because if I live this way, it's going to make me more like him. It's not I live this way so that he'll like me and other people will think highly of me. That's the wrong target to aim for. And it's easy to make that the list. But look at what Paul says in verse 23. Here's the target. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. So to change the very way you think. He would write in Romans chapter 12, no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By living this way, your mind gets changed. Everything about the way you think about the world changes. And he says that in verse 24, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the Christian things that you do are vitally important, but they have an end goal, and it's to make you more like Jesus. You won't hit that target every single time. But you're going to land on that target if you're aiming for that target with the power of the Holy Spirit. Which brings up a couple things. The Apostle Paul gives us two very clear warnings in the same passage that we read. As you pursue aiming your life at a target of pursuing holiness with your life, there's some warnings. There's some things that are easy to get tripped up on. 
One of the ways to overcome some of those barriers that you're going to come up against is to know exactly what your sin is doing. Know exactly what's happening when you choose not to live holy, when you choose not to pursue holiness. And he says this in verse 30. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. One of the ways for us to understand what our sin is doing is to understand that when we choose to sin, meaning when we choose not to allow the Holy Spirit to give us the power to overcome our battles, we are literally grieving the heart of God. Think about that. Your sin grieves God. Not just wrath, not just anger, grief. Like a really good dad whose kids go down a dark path. He grieves Like God experiences grief. Yeah, look, Psalm 78, verse 40. How often they, the Israelites, rebelled against him, went down that dark path in the wilderness, and they grieved him in the desert. Isaiah 63, verse 10. But they rebelled, they went down that dark path, and they grieved his Holy Spirit. See, God is personal. And one of the things to understand about your sin that will motivate you to choose to live a different way is to understand that It's not a transactional relationship that you have with God. If I do this, he'll do this. And if he does that, I'll do this. And we're good, God. Me and you are good. That's called deism. It's like, hey, he's there. And if I just do these things, it'll be fine. He's got the world going and I'm okay. And he's not really involved. That's not what Christianity teaches. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we have a personal and intimate relationship with God and that we understand that what I'm doing has an impact on his heart. And my sin can grieve him, which means that my pursuit of holiness isn't just about some victory that I have. It's about understanding the heart of God. Jerry Bridges says it this way. Oftentimes, we're more concerned about our own victory over sin. We're more concerned for that than we are about the fact that our sins grieve God's heart. Don't make the goal the victory over sin. That's a great thing to achieve. The goal is connecting with the heart of God. The second thing is this. Always be aware that the enemy is waiting to pounce on your life. Paul says here, don't give the enemy a foothold, meaning he's looking for it. Satan's constantly looking for a way in. And the Holy Spirit wants to seal the door so he can't get in, but you gotta let him work. And when you don't let him work, Satan cannot wait to get in. Satan wants your marriage to fail. Satan constantly wants your kids to struggle and your relationship with them to struggle. Satan wants you to give in to anger. Satan wants your life to be dominated by sexual temptation and the giving in of that sin. Satan wants those things, and he's looking for every single opportunity he can to make your life harder in your pursuit of holiness. He is. And when you put your guard down, you're completely susceptible to him working. I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings. Okay? I'm not maybe as big a fan as some of you, but I am a fan. I've read them, and I like the movies, all of it. So when Amazon came out and said, hey, we're going to come out with this new series on Lord of the Rings, I thought this is going to be average because uh, it's Amazon. Uh, and and I, I was worried about it. So far, two episodes in, they've only released two. I've watched them both. They're not bad. Uh, it's, it's actually a pretty good thing. And I'm going to spare you all the details and all the storylines and the characters' names. But there is this scene in the, in the first part of this show where the young hero she recognizes that evil is still present and she wants to make sure they engage in the battle. Like, don't stop. We can't stop. And then you have this king who's like, no, it's a time of peace. Man, we're ready to just rest. And, And he gets complacent. And she has this line that she says to him that's just powerful. That's a reminder of what Paul's saying here when he says, don't give the enemy a foothold. Here's what she says to him. Evil does not sleep. It waits. It's just waiting. Until the moment of our complacency, it blinds us. 
Satan's waiting for you to get complacent. Can I tell you as a pastor, one of the hardest things for me is to watch people put their guard down, is to watch people get complacent, stop pursuing holiness, start aiming at the wrong target, to watch lives of children whose parents decided we don't really need to watch out for the culture. We'll just kind of let whatever happens. This is normal. Everybody else is doing it. We'll just do it. To watch marriages just say, hey, he's looking at that, but it's fine because it may, whatever. To watch people pursue more money and more power and more acceptance. Because I get called into those living rooms and I sit with those families and a lot of our elders and staff do and we cry with them over the pain that sin has caused in their life. And one of the only ways forward is to tell them to get your guard up. Jesus said, be aware, be alert, stay awake, don't fall asleep. Paul says here, don't give the enemy a foothold because he will take it in a heartbeat. Keep your guard up, pursue holiness. You're not going to hit that target every single time, but that is, needs to be the direction that your life is headed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve him, don't stop him from working. Let him seal you so the enemy can't get that foothold. Continue to allow the Lord to work. We're going to transition to a time where you're going to have some time to reflect. And I want to give you these four questions. When I was a freshman in college, I was asked to read a book. Ben, we went to the same school. Ben, even as a freshman, all those years later, uh, had to read the same book. And uh, it's called The Pursuit of Holiness. And in the book, the author gives uh, this kind of this fourfold questions. He ties to a different text, but I just think it applies to our passage today. So I'm going to give you these four questions, uh, and then we're going to have a time to just kind of sit and reflect on them, and Ben will lead us into a time of communion here. First question is this. Is this decision I'm making, is the direction I'm heading, is it helpful physically, spiritually, mentally? Whatever it is that you're up against is, as in your life is going to put you on a path, and is that path going to be helpful to me physically, spiritually, and mentally? Second question. Does this put me under its power, meaning whatever it is I'm doing? So yeah, let's take that next job, but now I'm enslaved to my career. I might make a little bit more money, but now my family has to sacrifice because I chose to do this. I mean, is this going to keep me under a power that doesn't allow me to pursue the holiness of God? Question number three, does it hurt other people? Is my objective here maybe a good thing, but along the way, it's going to create pain in the lives of other people. I've had some fascinating talks with my son these last few weeks around sports as he's engaging in high school sports. And, you know, the mentality in youth sports is just broken. Teaching kids that the goal is to make sure you're better than everybody else in the room. You have to be the best. In order for that to come true, someone else has to suffer. You have to cause suffering in someone else's life in order for you to be better than them. And if your goal is to prove that you're better than them, your goal is to make sure that they know that they're less than you. And that's not the good goal. The good goal is to say, I'm going to do everything I can to do the best I can to the glory of God. Two different targets. Is my pursuit going to hurt other people or not? And the last one is the most important question. Does this direction of my life glorify God? Is, is, is whatever we're headed toward as a family or as an individual, if we go this path, aim for that target, is, does it make much of Jesus or does it make much of me? Who gets the glory if we go down that path? I want you to think about those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've called us onto this incredible journey to pursue holiness. Not easy, but man, God, are we grateful that we don't go on that journey alone. We don't take a step that you're not aware of. You're so intimately connected to our lives. Your word tells us that you know the amount of hair on our head. 
Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for that, that, that intimate connection that we can share with you because of what Jesus did. Father, I'm also so incredibly grateful that as we journey down this path toward living holy lives, lives that stand out, that look different, that stand in the light and not in the darkness, that we don't have to rely on our own power, that the Holy Spirit that lives in us will encourage and edify and convict and lead if we'll just submit to where you're leading us. God, help us to aim our lives at the right target. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name.